As you remain standing, you can turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you tonight, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles. It should be in front of you, perhaps next to you, and you'll find tonight's text on page 1012. We've now reached past the halfway point in our study of James, and we want to look at verse 1 through 6 of chapter 4. So let me read that passage for us, and then pray for a time, and And we'll begin together. So listen now as God does speak to you once again through His perfect Word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it said, says God's opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do pray for your grace and your mercy to minister to us tonight. And that you would help us to find the peace that's found in Jesus Christ. That you would help us to walk in newness of life. That you would help us to walk in his wisdom that we might show forth its fruits of being peaceable and gentle, full of mercy always open to reason, impartial and sincere. We pray these things in His precious name. Amen. You may be seated. It was just two days ago on Friday of this week that our fourth son, Knox Andrew, had a birthday. And as often happens, he turned seven years old. On birthday, you know, special things happen. A birthday summonses, summons something unique. So it was birthday donuts in the morning. Then later on the day, it was playing at a local park. It was a menu at dinner time of, of his choosing, a movie of his choosing presents and gifts, of course, along the way. But some of you may remember adults, and certainly some of you kids might acutely know how this often happens. When you're young and you have a birthday, that also means you're summoned to the doctor's office, right? Because you have to go for your annual checkup. And so soon, because he's now seven years old, Knox is going to have to go to the pediatrician and see if everything's working properly. See if everything is developing uh, properly. And the reason I tell you that is because what we turn to now in chapter 4 of James is very much as though James is putting on his doctoral hat with spirituality. Because really what's happening in verses 1 through 12, he's giving his readers, his immediate original hearers, a spiritual checkup. And we're going to look at part 1 tonight with the first six verses because it does stretch all the way through verse 12, but... We only really have time to get through the first six tonight. And he is going to put something before our eyes, before our hearts, to see how we're doing spiritually. And I don't know about you, but I historically have been one of those people that don't like to go to the doctor. And it's not that I don't trust doctors, but they tend to poke, they tend to prod. You know, when you were younger, you always had this fear, or at least I did, of are they going to make me get another shot along the way. And uh, James, if you know his style... Certainly many of you have been with us through the evening in recent months to know enough of his style. You might feel a little bit concerned, perhaps. You might feel a little bit 
worried if Dr. James is now going to come to a spiritual checkup. Because he does, with relentless bluntness. He likes to poke. He likes to prod. He likes to get underneath that which sometimes we want to treat as respectable sins. And he's going to do that along the way tonight with this simple theme that I want to bring to your attention largely from verses 4 and 5, but certainly we'll see its preceding text as well, the danger of worldliness. And so he's going to poke and prod. He's going to ask questions. He's going to give a diagnosis. He's going to even give a remedy along the way tonight. And so I want you to see three simple parts to this passage. i got three words to delineate the way through our text. And that first word for verses 1 through 3 is description. He gives us a description of the problem. Look again what we're told in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And what you need to know is that it doesn't make sense what he's asking here until you, of course, see the larger context, which is mostly the preceding paragraph. So if you were with us last week, we noticed at the end of chapter 3, it too is a paragraph that began, you'll see, with a question, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? And James went on to say that there are two rival systems of wisdom in the world. And he says, prove your wisdom with your good conduct. Prove your wisdom with your godliness. Prove your wisdom with your holiness. He says there is a wisdom from below, which is earthly wisdom. And there is a wisdom from above, which is heavenly wisdom. And heavenly wisdom, if you just glance back to last week's text, verse 17, is peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason. Verse 18 further underscores heavenly wisdom is being full of peace. Verse 18 announces a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So heavenly wisdom, well, that's peaceable people. Well, earthly wisdom, verse 16 says, are people full of selfishness, ambition. They just sow disorder, not peace. And so he's essentially saying to his readers, well, you profess to possess heavenly wisdom. Now, Here's the inconsistency. Heavenly wisdom is shown with peace. Yet, you're full of quarrels and fights. Is what verse 1 announces. So he asks another question, doesn't he? Verse 1 continues. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You It's helpful to know, especially students, that the way that the Bible thinks about passions is not the way our culture and context thinks about passions. We kind of think about passions as this kind of good ambition a lot of times. Well, for this time in the writing of the New Testament, passions was a little more than just selfish lusts or sinful lusts. Its root word actually comes or gives us our English word of hedonism, this kind of self-indulgent desire for vices and sinful pleasures. What is it that's causing your quarreling? What is it that's causing your fighting? Well, your passions are at war within you. So James is saying, what's the inconsistency here? Heavenly wisdom seems to actually be manifesting the fruits of earthly wisdom. And you see, Dr. James is telling us, that's a problem. And yet, if you know anything about Christian history, and many of you have been in churches long enough to realize, it's a problem, isn't it? That seems to be a perennial one for Christians and churches. As though the church actually becomes little more in members' experience than a fight club. It was in the 17th century, a Jewish philosopher named Baruch Spinoza. He observed this, and stay with me for these couple sentences of a quote 
So this is a man that didn't believe in the gospel, observing in the Christian church of his time in the 17th century. I've often wondered that persons who make a boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, patience, charity to all men, should quarrel with rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues they claim, is the readiest criterion of their faith. In other words, Jewish, unbelieving philosopher Baruch Spinoza, how would you know a Christian in your time and context? Just look for the ones that fight with each other. That's where you'll find a Christian. And certainly James is seemingly saying the same thing to his readers, isn't he? That your experience is little more than passions warring within you that's creating these wars within your community, within your fellowship. It should be concerning if some of you know how these things go, even in recent years within the church, that what the Lord seemed to do in some ways, in many churches, is use a pandemic uh, to bring out these passions at war within God's people. First, you can go to many a church in our context even today and I talk to their pastors or leaders or elders about their experience over the last 18 to 20 months and almost universally across the board, you'll say, hey, it's been hard. You know, we have, we have lots of difficulty in trying to shepherd unto unity and deal with divisions and disagreements along the way. Some of you know that even at a more popular level in our nation right now, they're talking about the great resignation as people just leave one job and go to the next. And you may not realize that there is a great resignation actually happening among the pastorate right now. Uh, even quite a noticeable number of resignations in our presbytery, which are little more than men saying, I have nothing left to give out of all of this difficulty, all of these divisions and disagreements. So he's trying to describe this problem for our attention. And he goes on to say, doesn't he, verse 2, you desire and do not have. This is more of the reason for these warring passions and quarrels and fights. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now kids, if you look at verse 2, do you think that church members to whom James is addressing, these church members would have been murdering one another, right? He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Well, more scholars than you actually might think say, well, it could be possible. I think it's very unlikely, no doubt. Think of the Lord Jesus' words that, of course, you may not have killed someone, but if you harbor hatred in your heart, you have killed someone in your heart, such as the war of words that often belongs to Christian fellowships. I know a pastor once that had a member in his church that was just kind of a constant critic, and a critic behind the scenes that was always vitriolic with his words. And so when he had heard one time about this church member's most recent attack, he said, hey, I you know, sent him an email, called him on the phone, I don't remember which it was, and said, hey, you know, come into my office tomorrow, we need to talk. And when this member, who had been his constant critic, came into his office, the pastor stood up and turned around and just kind of exposed his back to this man. And he said, hey, can you take all the knives out of my back? And he turned around, and the man was just confused and perplexed. And he said, I want you to know that your constant anger and hatred towards me has been nothing more than knives in my back. And at least as far as I understand, the man never repented of it. And don't you know that words can often have that power? Quarrels and fights, disagreements and divisions, James says, are plaguing your midst. And plaguing your midst, even though you're actually pretty active in your prayer life. You see what he says in verse 2 at the end through verse 3. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because 
You ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, of course, James is saying that it's good when strife and difficulty comes that the church pray for God's answer to that problem. Answer that we're going to soon see is all about God's grace and mercy. But, but I hope you know, students, that you can pray wrongly. That you can ask wrongly. As Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, surely the Lord, the Lord would not have heard my prayer. So here's a description of the problem. Now, verse 4 and 5 leads to our second word, denunciation. It's a denunciation of the problem. Begins with this exclamatory statement. Notice verse 4. You adulterous people. I mean, it's, it's a pastor's clear rebuke, isn't it? Years ago, I remember someone sending me a video of uh, the late R.C. Sproul on a panel. And someone had asked at that conference a uh, question of these men that were standing up on the panel. And the question, I think, revolved around, if God is full of grace, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, why was his punishment of Adam in the Garden of Eden so severe? And Sproul quickly said, I'll answer that. For about 90 seconds, he kind of started leading up to this peroration about God's holiness and righteousness. About 90 seconds in, he just kind of put his microphone to his mouth and with earnestness, sincere vehemence, he said, what's wrong with you people? Of course God would punish sin in this way. It's almost like James is coming out of the text and saying that. You adulterous people. What does it mean by adulterous people? Well, look at verse 4 as it continues. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Asking to spend on your passions. Laboring your life in such a way to satisfy your sinful pleasures James says, this is what's causing the quarrels and fighting, and this is nothing more than just worldliness. And he wants to make sure that his audience, and of course by extension, us as well, understand the great problem that belongs to loving the world. As 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, no person can love the world and love the Father as well. Why can't you be friends with the world? Well, because to be friends with the world, children is to be an enemy of God. And I wonder if you think worldliness is a problem in the church today. You know, increasingly in our nation, there's conversation, and I think it's understandable in, in many ways, that uh, the presenting problem in terms of the world and its relationship to the church is persecution from the world. And that's true, genuinely in other contexts, but certainly I think in our country as it belongs to the church, the great problem isn't persecution from the world, it's seduction by the world. We can be so easily seduced into thinking it's okay to love the world when James is here to tell you, you adulterous people. Why would you ever think that you could be friends with the world? Underscoring that, notice further what he says in verse 5, or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? It's language in the original there, verse 5, that's Somewhat difficult to translate. It can kind of come out in at least three different ways, perhaps four. But the, the clear point is there. That to love the world is, of course, to not just make an enemy of God. It's to commit spiritual adultery with a God who has claimed you. With a Savior who loves you. He's saying that God has this holy jealousy for His people's affections and attention. And to give it to the world, of course, is nothing more than spiritual adultery. 
So that's why when you come to a text like this, you need to understand the story of an old preacher, one of the greatest preachers in church history, which was a man named John Chrysostom. And he was known as the golden mouth, which is really what Chrysostom means. And uh, one time when he was preaching a sermon to his people, and he said, if you could guarantee that the entire world would be my congregation, and if you could put me up on a mountain high enough for everyone to see me, and if you could give me a voice like brass that would be loud enough that everyone could hear me, I would take as my theme for that one sermon, the vanity of the world. Because the vanity of the world so often kills the soul. Maybe there are things in your life or perhaps even tonight you might think on further reflection and meditation. They're doing nothing actually to contribute to your relationship with God. In fact, they're doing much more to kill your relationship with God. That's the denunciation. Notice verse 6, the declaration of the answer. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It reminds me of this old hymn that not many Christians or churches sing anymore. It was written decades and decades ago by Annie Johnson Flint, and it's called, He Giveth More Grace. And Some of you may know this one. It was a hymn that first came to my attention years ago in a previous church where I pastored was going through a unique season of difficulty, and that difficulty being death. We just had lots of members dying unexpectedly. And it became a hymn that ministered to many of us in a variety of different ways. And a new setting to that hymn kind of takes one of its verses as a chorus. And it says, His love has no limit, His grace has no measure, His power no boundary known unto men, for out of His infinite riches in Jesus He giveth and giveth and giveth again. And it's the gospel, isn't it? Verse 6, according to James, He gives more grace. Oh, what, what pastoral, even tenderness there is there than the sweep of just a couple sentences? You adulterous people! He gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, quoting a central passage from Old Testament ethics James is doing right here. That grace belongs to those who humble themselves before the Lord. Grace belongs even to spiritually adulterous people who love the world if they would but humble their hearts before the Lord. I wonder if you've humbled your heart before the Lord in this way. If you've bowed before Him in faith and repentance and received that shower of grace that He has promised to any that come to Him out of the infinite riches in Jesus. He gives and gives and gives again. I don't know what your childhood was like growing up in terms of its rhythm of family devotion. Uh, ours in my household... Uh, was kind of communicated under this moniker of family time. It was usually actually on Sunday evenings. Dad would say, hey, in about an hour and a half, family time is going to happen. And kids, you, you might know what I mean when I was growing up, that usually we would have this inner groan of family time is coming. Because it wasn't just about reading the Bible and discussing its truth. It was often talking about the week to come. Uh, no doubt ways in which our parents and diligence to train were trying to help us out of sinful patterns along the way. And so we invariably knew, at least in my experience in recalling these things, that correction was on the way. And family time is found, isn't it, in this spiritual checkup. It's like James summons us as God's people. He's summoning his original hearers. He's gathering them together and says, hey, we need to have a talk. We need to speak clearly about what's happening in your fellowship. 
You who profess to possess heavenly wisdom, yet all of your interactions seem to communicate the opposite. Well, here's a description of the problem. Here's a denunciation of the problem. Here's a, here's a declaration of the answer. And to make sure that we don't miss its simple truth that we're to see tonight, let me give you two final exhortations as we begin to close. Number one, don't treat worldliness casually. Don't treat worldliness casually. A Spurgeon once said that if you can look through the annals of church history, you will find that every time there is an age, a century, a decade in which the world has much influence on the church, you will find a church with little influence on the world. And no doubt that remains true in our time as well. I don't know what your experience is of conversations related to worldliness. You know, I've lived in this context long enough to know that certain people come from church traditions and other places of Protestant belief where any conversation about worldliness seems to kind of have this traumatic-like reaction from them as though it's going to be this closed-minded fundamentalism presented to them. And I suppose that you might have come from a setting like that. And I understand in this kind of concern about me saying, don't treat worldliness casually. James saying, you can't be friends with the world and be a lover of God. But recognize that's what he's saying that you can't be friends with the world, otherwise you'd be an enemy with God. So I wonder then what in your life might need to be cast out. Because you might realize tonight it's actually worldly. Uh, you do know, don't you, that Christians, because of their love for Jesus Christ, don't do certain things that the world does. We don't say certain things that the world does. We don't love certain things that the world does. But we dare not just communicate it negatively, but also positively. We do things the world does not. We get privileges the world does not. What blessings and benefits belong to us. And may those things occupy our attention and stir our affection. So don't treat worldliness casually. But maybe you're in here tonight and you realize that you actually have been treating worldliness casually. You have not thought it's that big of a deal. And you realize tonight that you are actually an enemy of God. Uh, what are you to do? Well, that's the second final exhortation. Come to the Lord dependently. He gives more grace Aren't we told in John chapter 1 that it's in Jesus Christ that God gives grace upon grace? If you were to find love for Christ growing in your heart, what you'll find is love for the world disappearing as soon as the sun appears and melts the snow. You'll find mercy in the church. You'll not find adultery spiritually or envy in the heart. You'll find harmony instead of disunity. What we'll find, of course, as we come to the Lord dependently for His grace, is we'll find a church that doesn't begin to look like the world. We'll find a Christian fellowship that looks altogether otherworldly in its attention, in its worship, and its adoration. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do thank You that you have given us grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray that by your Spirit, that you would diagnose the sins that have been cherished and encouraged even this week in our hearts. Sins that belong to a way of the world and sin that doesn't belong to discipleship in Jesus Christ. Help us to increase in our love for you that we might find peace, that we might find gentleness, that we might find unity, that we might find evermore the grace upon grace that's found in your Son, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Let's stand together as we...
respond to God's Word, singing our hymn of response there on page 3. Printed in your bulletin, Speak, O Lord.